Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bible, would you please open it and turn to Matthew chapter 26. My name is Brenton, and uh, I work at the church here, Vero Bible Fellowship, and I am extremely grateful to be a part of this fellowship. And I'm extremely grateful to have the opportunity to preach the word to you this morning. I just want to thank Ralph and the worship team for leading us in a wonderful time of worship through song this morning. Uh, It's a perfect way to end. How worthy, how worthy. The king and all his beauty. Yes, let's give it up for them. And it's the king that we look to this morning in the final hours of his life in Matthew chapter 26. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, Your word is a holy and sacred thing. And I ask for every help now to preach it. And I ask for every help now that we might hear it truly and in the way it's meant to be understood. Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room, Lord, who are spiritually dead, who have never put their faith in you, that this morning their eyes would be opened to that truth and they would run to the person of Jesus Christ. I pray this morning for the saints in the room, those who might be burdened and wearied by their sin. I pray, Lord, that this word would be of great encouragement to them. Help us, Lord, in this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's an attribute that is deemed a precious and good thing in almost every relationship. And that attribute is faithfulness. Whether it's the relationship of a father and a son, an honorable father is one who is faithful and there for his son. The relationship of a husband and wife is built upon the foundation of faithfulness. And if you ask anyone what they look for in a friend or what makes a great friend, you're sure to find faithful in that list. On the flip side of that coin, nothing hurts so much in our relationships as unfaithfulness. To be betrayed is something that can sting. As C.S. Lewis would say in the opening pages of Mere Christianity, We see no soldier as honorable who runs from his fellow countrymen in battle. And we take no pride in a man who betrays those who are kindest to him. In Matthew chapter 26, we're going to see the last days of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And in this ever-important hour, his disciples display much unfaithfulness. And yet there's hope. Because Jesus Christ, our true and faithful king, shows himself obedient to the Father in this hour. So, let's begin in verse 1. If you'd look with me at Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, and we're going to pause right there. This short phrase, when he had finished all his sayings, is actually a literary device that Matthew uses in this gospel. 
The Gospel of Matthew is a teaching gospel. And what we mean by that is there are big sections of Jesus' teaching contained in the gospel. There's five that are most notable. Uh, Chapters 5 through 7, which is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 10, where Jesus instructs his disciples before he sends them out to evangelize. Chapter 13, where he teaches them in parables about what true belief in the kingdom looks like. Matthew chapter 18, where he teaches on the church. And then Matthew chapter 24 and 25, which we just finished the past couple weeks, where Jesus teaches on the end times. And after every one of these teachings, Matthew uses this phrase, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. What he's doing is he's cueing us that no longer are we in a section of teaching, but rather he's turning us to the narrative, to what happens next in the life of Jesus. And here, we have just finished the final teaching in the book of Matthew. And so what we turn to next is Jesus' journey to the cross. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to cover all of Matthew chapter 26 today, and then next week we have Matthew Matthew chapter 27, and we are finished with the book of Matthew. Uh, uh, There is Matthew chapter 28, but uh, we, uh, if you were here with us on Easter, Pastor Greg covered that chapter in full then, and so we're almost finished with this book. We just have a few more chapters to go, and so this is very exciting. So let's continue. Let's look at verses one through five again. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar, among the people. So we see here Jesus predicts for the fourth time in the book of Matthew to his disciples that he is going to the cross to die. It's now two days before the Jewish Passover feast. And we don't have time to talk about the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. But if you're not familiar, I encourage you to look at Exodus chapter 12 and 13, as that's when those feasts were founded. But today, uh, I just want to briefly mention that the Passover starts on a Friday. This is when the feast would happen. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would also start that day and carry on for seven days after. Here, where we're at in this moment, is we're two days before the Passover, so that's a Wednesday. And Friday is the day that Jesus will be arrested and go to the cross We see in verses 3 through 5 that the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish people are plotting to arrest and to kill Jesus. They despise him. They think he is not truly the Messiah. They've opposed him all throughout the book, but now here finally they are plotting to kill him. And it's interesting, many of the people liked Jesus. Many of the people wanted to see Jesus and what he was doing. And so they say, let's not arrest him during the feast. Otherwise, there could be a big uproar among the people. In fact, Jerusalem at this time would swell with the Jewish people as they celebrated the Passover. Its population would increase uh, significantly. Thousands upon thousands would be in Jerusalem during this time. And so they say, okay, let's not arrest him during the feast, but after. 
so that there's no uproar among the people. And this is not what our focus is going to be today, but I feel I need to mention it. It's interesting that uh, their plotting was to arrest and to kill Jesus after the Passover. And yet, as we're going to see, Jesus is arrested and killed on the Passover, which has significant symbolism. And this should show us God is sovereign. This chapter, things get dark. The disciples are unfaithful. It is a dark hour in the life of Jesus. And he's in great agony. And things do not look good. But we must remember, God is sovereign over all these events. He is in control of it all. And he is the king of the universe. Nothing comes apart from his command or his hand. And so that's important to remember. So we're going to see several things in this chapter. I want to give you an overview of them before we kind of go through the chapter and look at each of them. So if you would just look at your Bible with me, uh, this chapter is quite long. It has 75 verses. And so I just want to give you an overview of the events that are happening. In verses 6 through 13, we see that Jesus is anointed with oil by a woman in the city of Bethany. In verses 14 through 16, we find out that Jesus' disciple, Judas, is going to betray Jesus. In verses 17 through 25, we see Jesus celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. Then in verses 26 through 29, we see Jesus instituting a new meal, the Lord's Supper, which we still celebrate today. In verses 30 through 35, we see Jesus foretelling the denial of Peter, that Peter will deny that he knows the Lord. In verses 36 through 46, that's what Helen read for us, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his Father before he goes to the cross. In verses 47 through 56, we see that Jesus is arrested in the Garden by the chief priests and the elders, by the hand and the betrayal of Judas. In verses 57 through 68, we see Jesus on trial before the Jewish elders and the Jewish council. And then in verses 69 through 75, we see Peter's denial of Christ, what Jesus predicted being fulfilled. And so this is uh, quite a lot that happens in this chapter. And so uh, there's a lot here, and so to help organize it, I want to focus on three things in this chapter that have to do with three people. Three things that have to do with three people. And the first is the unfaithfulness of Judas. The first is the unfaithfulness of Judas. If you look at verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, it's easy to pass over those first couple of words, but I want to draw attention to them. They should shock us. Matthew points to the fact that Judas was one of the 12. One of Jesus' closest followers who lived life with him, who followed him, who listened to his teachings year after year and was with him continually, one of the twelve is going to betray Christ. 
And so I think the question that comes to mind is why? Why did one of Jesus' closest 12 disciples with him for three years betray him? And the answer that we come to is that, Jesus, uh, that Judas was not a true disciple. That he was not a true disciple for Christ. And the implication for us is that a person can come to church year after year, listen in the seats to God's word week after week, try to live a good life and obey what he hears, and still not be a true disciple of Christ. This can be a a terrifying thought, honestly. And so what I want to do for the first part of this chapter is I want to talk about two characteristics that we see of a true disciple so as to give you as a Christian an assurance of your salvation, but so as to also wake up anyone in this room that may not truly be a Christian that maybe has been to church year after year, but has never truly made the decision to follow Christ. We're going to look at verse 6 first. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we see this beautiful scene where a woman takes this very expensive flask of ointment. It's said to be about 300 denarii, which is about a year's worth of salary for an average laborer in that time. And she takes it and she pours it on the head and feet of Jesus. And, And she probably doesn't know this, but Jesus says, she has just anointed me, prepared me for my burial to come. But the disciples are angry at this. It's interesting. This story actually doesn't really take place around the other stories here. I said that Passover is on a Friday. Jesus had just predicted that he would die on a Wednesday. This story is actually taking place the week prior, the Friday before. Matthew is not so concerned with giving us a chronological order of the events. The book of John is more chronological. Matthew is more concerned with giving us a thematic order of the events. And so he puts this here for a reason. And it's interesting. The disciples were indignant at what this woman did. They were angry. They were mad at it. And Matthew, I think, is is concerned with painting a picture here of the disciples as a whole being unfaithful. But we learn in the book of John that Judas was actually the one who led the disciples in this complaint. And Judas did that, it says, because Judas was the treasurer. He was the money, uh, he was in charge of the money bag for the group of disciples. And so if something was, was given to them to distribute to the poor, 
It says Judas would take out of the money bag for himself. And so what we see here, and the first characteristic of a false disciple, is one who loves money more than he loves Jesus. Or put positively and more generally, a true disciple finds their greatest joy in Jesus more than anything else. I mean, what this woman did was not practical or frugal or what we would think of as a common sense kind of thing, but, but it was worship. As she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, she's willing to give anything to honor him and to show her devotion to him. And Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing she has done. Her heart is set on Christ, not on her wealth or her money. It makes me think back to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Just before this, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart, if your treasure is set on the things of this world, that's where your heart will follow. But the example of this woman is that her heart was set on Christ. Judas betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver. It's, it's about four months of uh, wages for an average laborer, which is just nothing compared to what he's done. And the enticement of sin is that it promises happiness and yet it never delivers. There might be a fleeting moment of happiness, but soon it will quickly pass. You're left empty and longing for more. And so money does to us time and time again. But when we find our joy in Jesus Christ, we find that he is a well that never runs dry. And so our first characteristic that we see is that Judas loved other things, namely money, more than he loved Jesus. The second thing we see occurs in uh, verses 17 through 25, which we're going to read next. This is when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. And so we see here that Jesus is celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples, and he reveals to the group, One of you will betray me. The group gets very sad and sorrowful, and they, they go around and say, is it, is it I, Lord? But look closely at what Judas says when it comes around to him at the table. He says, is it I, Rabbi? 
And the distinction I want to make here, the second thing that we see is that a uh, false believer, one who is not a true disciple, is one who has not given Jesus lordship over his life. Judas addresses Jesus as rabbi or teacher, as one who he wants to learn much from, but not as the Lord of his life, as the other disciples addressed him. Put positively, a true disciple is one who submits to the rule of King Jesus over their life. And this is a glad submission. It's a joyful submission to the king of all kings, but it is a surrendering of our life. And so we see here, listen, faith in Christ can easily be mischaracterized by intellectually believing what is said about God in church and attending church week after week. But listen, Satan fully believes what is true about God. And so the Bible helps us to see that two indispensable elements of saving faith are joy in Christ and submission to Christ. If we don't love God, then how different is our belief than that of Satan, than that of Judas? Without those things, we simply have a religion that we ascribe to and a service that we come to week after week joy in Christ and submission to Christ. The unfaithfulness of Judas is prominent in this chapter. Eight times the word betray is used in this chapter. It's it's focusing us on this. And so the first thing we look at is the unfaithfulness of Judas. But the second thing that we want to look at is the unfaithfulness of Peter. Let's look at verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. We see here that Jesus predicts that when he is arrested, all the disciples are going to flee and scatter. And Peter says, not me, Lord. I'm going to stick by your side. I'll die with you before I flee. And Jesus predicts this very night, Peter, you will deny me three times. If we look at verses 69 through 75 now, we see the fulfillment of this. Now, when Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, back in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus again on the Sermon on the Mount said, do not make an oath. Yet Peter here makes an oath. He says, I swear I do not know the man. Verse 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now uh, Peter is saying, if I'm lying 
would God curse me? I don't know that man. How grave this is. It says, and immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so we've seen the unfaithfulness of Judas. But what are we to make of the unfaithfulness of Peter? The disciple who is seemingly a leader among the twelve, in the most difficult hour, denies even knowing the Lord. Peter here succumbed to sin. He acted in the fear of man rather than the fear of God. But does this then put Peter in the same category as Judas? Would we say that Peter is not a true disciple? Not in the slightest. In Peter, we see that even those who are true disciples will fall and sometimes fall hard. Even those who are Christians will at times in their life act unfaithful to Christ. And if that's you today, if you are a Christian, but you have fallen in unfaithfulness before God, you've sinned greatly, whether it was recently or in your past, find great encouragement in this today that Peter was restored. Peter was restored. Even with this threefold denial of Christ, I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. Three times, with an oath, with a curse, he denies even knowing Jesus. Think of the gravity of that. And yet, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, in John chapter 21, we see him come back to Peter and to restore him. And it's neat, even in this chapter, we see a glimpse of that grace. If you look at verse 32, even when Jesus predicts that he is going to be striked, that, that the shepherd is going to be striked, and that the sheep will be scattered, he says, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even now, he's predicting that after the resurrection, he will come to them. And it's in this time in Galilee when he restores Peter. And he says to him three times again, do you love me, Peter? And Peter three times says, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And in Peter's response, we see what lacked in Judas. First, love. Jesus three times asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter responds, yes. Even though Peter fell greatly, he still loved the Lord Jesus. And then we see in the second part of his response, the second thing that we talked about, he says three times, yes, Lord. And so even though he has fallen, he again comes back to Christ and submits to his lordship. Even with this massive fall, Peter is restored because of the grace of Christ. And so the, the question for the Christian here today is, is not whether you have sinned and unfaithfulness to God, but the question is when you do, what is your response? You see, after this, Judas actually becomes very sorrowful. 
he realizes what he's done and he sells, he, he gives the money back to the ch- to chief priests and the elders. And he becomes very sorrowful. But where does that lead him? It leads him to suicide. Peter weeps over his sin. But where does it lead him? Back to Christ. And so the question is, do you repent? Yes. Do you come back to the one you love? Yes. Do you again submit to his lordship? Yes. Then God's grace has washed over you. Honestly, this is, this is hard for me. It's hard for me to see the own, my own unfaithfulness in my life and to believe the grace of Christ for it. I think it, it's, like, it's like a man who has, uh, accumulates a large debt from just foolish behavior. And a friend comes along and says, I'm going to pay that debt off in full for you. And he pays it all. But then the man who had the debt says, oh, thank you so much for what you've done. But uh, I still feel pretty bad about it. So I'm still going to make some payments to the bank, even though there's no balance. We keep ourselves trapped in the weight of our debt when Christ has said it's been paid in full. We've seen the unfaithfulness of Judas. We've seen the unfaithfulness of Peter. But most importantly, the third thing we must look at and we must end on is the faithfulness of Christ. Let's read in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a garden that was on the Mount of Olives. This is right next to Jerusalem, and it's a place that Jesus went quite frequently with his disciples. In fact, that's how Judas knows where to find him. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. It says, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be very sorrowful, or he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus knows what is about to come. He knows the death that he's heading toward and his soul is sorrowful and troubled. But then when he speaks to them, it takes a step further. He says, I am very sorrowful, even to death. It's a sorrow so deep that I feel as if it's going to kill me. The weight of the agony of this moment It says, going a little farther, he fell on his face, just in a position of total submission and crying out to God. And he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see in Jesus's moment of greatest agony, of greatest sorrow, of greatest temptation, he remains faithful to his father. In the Garden of Eden, man chose to say, not your will, God, but my will be done. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, says, not my will be done, but your will be done, God. He is the one who remained faithful. In this passage, I approach with great trembling. 
Because I, uh, we cannot begin to comprehend the mystery of Christ's humanity and his deity. That he is fully God and fully man. Truly, this is a great and wonderful mystery. And here we see that his humanity is on full display in that his desire is not to walk through the great suffering and death that's at hand. He knows the weight of what's going to happen. And he has a desire in him not to go through it. And yet, he is fully and completely God. And so he humbly and wholly submits to the will of his Father in the greatest hour of temptation. And it's because his will is not different than the will of his heavenly Father. We must understand this rightly. Jesus does not have a different will than that of his Father. In his humanity, he desires not to take on this death upon the cross. But in his deity, he is totally and completely in line with the will of his Father. And as we see, he submits to it. In the book of John, Jesus says, he's very clear, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. It is my decision, my will to lay down my life. And so we see that Jesus' will is in accord with the Father. And so in this moment, Jesus displays a perfect faithfulness, a perfect obedience to the Heavenly Father. And he did what we failed in. It's truly magnificent. Now, throughout church history, there have been many Christians who have gone to their death in this seemingly bold manner for God, whether it's to, to fire or, or to, to some other method of execution, they've gone boldly to him. And so the question then I ask is, why then is Jesus in such great agony? First, we can say that these men and women who did die as martyrs for the faith acted not in their own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, we must ask the question, is the death that they died the same as the death that Christ died? And the answer is surely no. But then the question is, what death did Christ die? We see Jesus in agony almost unto death because he knows that he has to take on the wrath of God against sin. No human being has ever or could ever do this. We see when he refers to the cup uh, in, in verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup is used as a, a metaphor, a symbol to refer to many different things in the Bible. But most often, it refers to God's wrath. And we see clearly here that this is what Jesus is referring to. The suffering to come, yes, but most importantly, or most, most truly, God's wrath upon him for the sins of mankind. Truly, we have all failed God. God created us to honor him. He created us to give our lives to him. And yet every person has sinned, has been disobedient to God, and has fallen short of honoring his glory. And so we all stand under the wrath of God without Christ. But Jesus took on himself the wrath of God for us. He was the substitute upon the cross. He stood in our place. 
just as the Passover feast is about a lamb, an unblemished lamb that is slain for the sins of the household so they might be forgiven. So Christ, Paul says, is our Passover lamb. He is the perfect lamb of God, the one who is truly faithful, truly obedient, and who went to the cross and stood in our place upon that cross. He was the substitute, and he took on the wrath of God for us as sinners. But he showed himself not just man, but God when he rose from the grave again, showing himself victory over death itself, over the weight of our sin. This is the gospel. This is what Christ has done on our behalf. And it had to be a perfect sacrifice. No one could stand in that place, a blemished lamb. But Christ was the unblemished lamb. As we see here three times, he remains faithful to his father. In verses 57 through 68, Jesus is tried before the Jewish council. And uh, it says many false witnesses came forward, but they couldn't get their stories together. He can't be accused of anything. The only thing that they accuse him of is saying that he is God, that he is the son of man. And the question that they should have asked is, what if we're wrong? Because they were. And so even on trial before the Jewish elders and chief priests, Jesus remains unblemished. What greater joy is there than in Christ, our faithful King, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to know that I stand forgiven at the throne of God because of the blood of Christ is astounding. There's no greater joy that should fill our hearts than to know that we're forgiven by the Lamb of God. Especially in light of my own faithfulness, which I see in all these disciples throughout this chapter. And yet... I plead the blood of the faithful one. And the the response that it makes me want to have is like the woman who anointed Jesus with, with the oil and the ointment. Lord, nothing is more important than you. Nothing in all my life is worth having you. There is no greater joy to be had than in you. No greater treasure than you. This should lead us to a place of worship to know that God has loved us so to go through the great agony of the cross on our behalf. Church, consider Christ our faithful king and let your heart feel the joy of his salvation. The, the question that I want to ask as we close, two questions actually, is one, are you Judas? Are you someone who has sat in church maybe your whole life, maybe several years, but you've never before had any kind of love for God or submission to his lordship? If that's you, repent. Turn to Christ. Forsake the emptiness of your sin and look to Christ, the perfect lamb of God who secured your forgiveness on the cross. Oh, there's great joy in turning to Christ and finding your love in him and finding your joy in him today. Submit to his lordship. He is the greatest treasure.
you could imagine. And so the first question is, are you Judas? But the second question is, are you Peter? Are you a Christian through and through, and yet sin has wreaked havoc on your life? You felt the weight of it. Again, maybe it's been something this week. Maybe it's been something in the past that still weighs heavily on you. Be encouraged today. I think about the fact that when Peter is before the throne of God, that God is not going to bring to account, he's not going to judge him and bring before him the three times that he denied Christ. Rather, as he stands before God, he's going to bring the threefold prayer of Christ in the garden. We remained faithful time and time again and say, Peter, you are clothed in Christ. Welcome in. And so you, thinking about the unfaithfulness that you have had to the Lord in your life, when you one day, Christian, stand before the throne of God, he will not look at each moment of unfaithfulness, but he will again look to Christ in the garden, and he will look to his faithfulness. Three times he prayed, your will be done. And he will say, welcome in. You are clothed in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. I pray that you have been encouraged this morning by the love of God for you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we cannot begin to understand the weight of the moment that Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. The weightiness of what he felt as he knew what was before him to take on the wrath of God against sin. If there was ever a moment of temptation that a man could walk through, it would be in that moment to walk away, to not go to the cross, to not take on the great heaviness, the great uh, uh, weightiness of what was before him. We see that he uses this phrase, sorrowful even to death, Lord, and we can't comprehend that moment. But we thank you, Lord, that our king remained faithful. We thank you, Lord, for the perfect obedience of the Lamb of God and that we come to your presence pleading the blood of Christ, clothed in Christ, wrapped in his garments and not our own. And I pray, Lord, this morning for the weary Christian in this room that the example of Christ's faithfulness would encourage them that the example of his love for us would be of great encouragement. But Lord, I also pray for those here who might be in that position that Judas was in, around Christ, hearing the teachings of Christ week after week in church, and yet never truly having any love for Christ, joy in Christ, or submission to him. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would call that person or those people out of darkness and into light. That they would see what Christ has done for them and they would joyfully submit to his lordship. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this morning. And we pray this in your good name. Amen. Amen.
Before we, uh, before we we're dismissed, I want to read a, uh, just a, a scripture from Jude, verses 24 and 25. It's a benediction, a doxology, a thing of worship, and I want to read it for us as we close. Um, but before I do, I just want to mention to you that we will have uh, elders and uh, prayer partners that will be up at the front after service. And so if there's something on your heart or anything that you need prayer for, I just encourage you to come forward and we would be uh, honored to pray with you. Let me read this um, and then we'll be dismissed. Jude 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Have a wonderful day, church.